everyone. This is Jeffrey Kerr. Currently in a limited theatrical release is a new biographical film titled Mank, which follows screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz and his battles with director Orson Welles over screenplay credits for the 1941 classic Citizen Kane. The movie is also set to debut on Netflix on December 4th, and I'm here today with a New York-based freelance writer who has contributed to the New York Times and many other publications. She is also the author of several books, including The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics, which chronicles the lives and careers of Herman and his brother, filmmaker Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Please welcome Sydney Layden Sean Stern. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So to start things off, How have you been doing during this time of lockdown due to the coronavirus? Well, I'm very fortunate because we don't have problems with shelter or work or young children at home that have to be educated, etc. And I'm in New York where there's plenty to see. I still walk around a lot. But so I'm fortunate. It's just very distressing. But as for our main topic of discussion today, how did you first discover the works of the Mankiewicz brothers? Well, it was interesting because after I did my biography of Gloria Steinem, which was the the last book I had done, I was looking for someone interesting and complicated and thought I would never find anyone as complicated as Gloria. And then this opportunity came up to write a book about someone from Hollywood. A, A friend was working on the Hollywood Legends series of the University Press of Mississippi, and I had never written about Hollywood. It's sort of a, a group of people who, who tend to cover that. So I started looking into it. I never wanted to write about an actor. I wanted to write about someone behind the scenes. And I knew about Herman Mankiewicz because I knew about Citizen Kane, but I had also interviewed Frank Mankiewicz, who's his son, who uh, for my Gloria book. He was a politico, among other things. So I, I knew about Herman, and I knew he was kind of complicated. So I read his 1978 biography, Mank. And um, wow, this guy was really complicated. So that led me to um, the 1978 biography of his brother, Joe. And I thought, hmm, I think the whole is greater than the sum of these two parts. And it would be really interesting to write about these two people and their movies. And so I got two complicated, complex, contradictory people instead of one. So that's how it evolved. It came from the people to the movies rather than trying to interpret the movies through the people. And I will add that um, Joe's daughter, Alex uh, Mankiewicz, said he would have loved that, that I was coming at him as a person. You know, I'm psychologically oriented as he was. He was sort of an amateur psychiatrist. So that was nice. It was a nice fit. Well, yeah, and I should say that, that I was already familiar with the Mankiewicz family through the works of Joseph Mankiewicz, Tom Mankiewicz, who had written the shooting scripts for the original Richard Donner Superman movie, and Ben Mankiewicz, who is a film critic and host at Turner Classic Movies. Though I must say that while I had seen Citizen King before, I actually didn't really know of Herman Mankiewicz until this new movie, Mank, was announced about almost a year and a half ago. Yes, he, he's certainly a, becoming a household name, which is someone who's been toiling on him and his brother, who's more well-known. Joe was, had a much more successful career than Herman. So it's great that, you know, that the visibility and the familiarity of the Mankiewicz name, although, yes, these, these living people had gone on. It's a dynasty. They're all brilliant, or at least bright, and they're all funny. I always say that's a rule. They have to be funny if you're Mankiewicz. Well, yeah. In fact, Ben Mankiewicz even recently got to 
be the reporter on a cover story at CBS Sunday Morning on the movie Manx. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, TCM had a Mankiewicz family weekend the end of March. So I got down to Atlanta to shoot it. They brought Alex from Australia. And Ben was the grandson of Herman. Alex is the daughter of Joe. And I was the biographer of those two. And so they screened a bunch of movies and we talked about them and, and about the two men. And it was really fun. And in doing my research on Herman, I saw that he was the first of 10 screenwriters who was assigned to write the screenplay for the 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz. He may not have gotten final credit on the script, but were any of his overall contributions able to make it into the finished film? I understand that it was actually his idea to have all the scenes set in Kansas filmed in black and white, and all the scenes set in Oz filmed in Technicolor. Yes. Well, first, I should say that he didn't think they should make a movie of The Wizard of Oz. He knew all the bomb books. He had read them to his children. But he said, don't do this and send a long memo saying to, to Metro Goldemir, don't don't make this into a movie. Of course, they did anyway. It shows you how right he was not. <laughs> so they put him on that. And he wrote this ridiculous opening with this wealthy woman and a dog that could do all these tricks and everything. And then when he got that out of his system, he did a more normal introduction, but he wasn't taking it seriously, which was his habit many times. And he did say, not only should they shoot the Kansas scenes in black and white, but they should be grays. They shouldn't be sharp black and whites. There should be a dullness about it. He did excel in getting taken off of projects and um, actually getting fired from studios. So it was not surprising that he was taken off that one. Although Herman was, of course, best remembered for collaborating with Orson Welles on the screenplay for Citizen Kane. How did he come to be a part of that? It was very accidental, as so many things in Herman's life were. This was in 1939. He had been fired from Metro-Golden-Mayer for actually at least the second time. And someone was driving back to New York and offered him a ride. And he decided he would try to rekindle his New York career as a newspaper man and a theater critic and a playwright, which was what he really wanted to do. So he hopped in the car and they were going east and in New Mexico, outside of Albuquerque, they were in a terrible car accident. And Herman's leg was broken in three parts and he had to be lifted back to LA. So he was in the hospital. He had met Orson Welles, who at this point is a 24-year-old genius. He'd met him when they were back in New York. And Orson Welles, he was a radio personality and a radio producer and a very creative person, but he had run out of money for his Mercury Theater operation. So he was finally going to take a contract to make a movie. And um, RKO offered him an amazing contract where he would write, produce, direct, and star in a couple of movies of his choice, which was unprecedented and infuriated the community in Hollywood because the trade-off in the studio system was that you did not have control of your work, but you were well taken care of. So here comes this outsider with no experience getting a dream contract. So people were very, oh, and he had final cut. I left the best part out. (laughs) So people were very angry and hostile to him, but a few people were nice to him. And one of the people who was nice to him was Herman. And so Orson Welles came to visit Herman in the hospital and then later at home when he was recuperating in traction and in a full body cast. And he had been trying to do Heart of Darkness 
Joseph Conrad's movie. And he had this really great idea about it, but it, the, the estimate came in too expensive. Then he was trying another idea, Smiler with a Knife, which was a spy story. And that wasn't panning out. So when he and Herman were visiting, they were kicking around ideas. And eventually they came up with the idea of this, basically a prismatic portrait of a person who would be viewed through many different people's eyes. It's an idea that Herman had already written a movie on and tried to do a play about John Dillinger, the gangster, on. And so it was a concept that he had had. And it was not new. I mean, it was around. And he had always known, he had known Hearst. He had been at San Simeon many times. And he had even tried to write a play about Hearst when he was back in New York. So this was an idea. His son, Don, a screenwriter, said he thought it was like a coin that his father carried around in his pocket and then finally decided to spend. But before they got to William Randolph Hearst, he and Wells kicked around a lot of other people, too, including Alexander Dumas, who evidently had a very colorful past. So as they proceeded to sort of brainstorm on the idea, it became clear that Herman should write the first draft because Herman really knew how to write screenplays and Wells was a good editor. He sort of backed into it as usual. While Citizen King was critically acclaimed when it first came out in 1941, it was still plagued with controversy. And when the movie won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay the following year, the whole audience at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood yelled, Boo! Yet, now 79 years later, Citizen King is viewed as a masterpiece, with many people calling it one of the greatest movies ever made, if not the greatest. Now, how do you think the film managed to get reevaluated like that in the years since? Well, what happened with the booing at the Academy Awards was that the reason there was so much controversy, of course, was that it was so negative about this Wells person. I mean, about this, sorry, Hearst. And so Hearst strong-armed studios into not making their theaters available. So it was very hard to get it distributed into theaters where a lot of audiences could see it. So it was critically acclaimed. It did get poor distribution. It was always admired. And the people at the awards dinner who were booing were the Hearst people, led by Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper, who, you know, is a little clack of Hearst people. But while it was admired, it did not become the iconic film that it has become. And that it started climbing in, um, I think, 1962, when there was a big vote of international critics voted it the most, the best movie of of the ages. And it stayed on top for many decades. And now Vertigo has displaced it in this survey. I mean, you can watch it infinite numbers of times. It really is an amazing movie to watch. I've watched it many times in the course of doing this book, and I always see new things. It's wonderful. And I think that is how appreciation for it just developed over the years. And there's just so much to unpack with it. Well, yeah. And having rewatched the movie myself a few months ago, it got me even more excited for Mink, yeah. which we'll be discussing a little bit more later. Though last month marked the 70th anniversary of the release of what many people consider to be Joe Mankiewicz's magnum opus, All About Eve. Now, obviously, it has gone on to be regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. Though if you were to meet any cinephiles who are planning to look into Joe's filmography, what other movies from him would you personally recommend? Well, All About Eve won him the second pair of Director and Writer Academy Awards. And the first pair he won the year before. So he, that's a record that hasn't been uh, beaten. 
two well, Writer and Director Academy Awards back to back. And that was for A Letter to Three Wives, which was a 1949 film. It's a comedy of manners, as All About Eve is, and it holds up today. It's quite wonderful. So that would be my first choice. I also particularly like the films that Joe made as a director when he was still under contract at 20th Century Fox, including Five Fingers, which is a, a true spy story, and No Way Out, which was Sidney Poitier's major movie debut, which is about race and actually, even though it's a 1950 film, hells up today, which most early 50s films do not. So that's what I would recommend, those three. Not Cleopatra. He wouldn't want me recommending. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that, I've never seen that, but yeah, I'm aware that it had quite a difficult production. It did, but you know, if you look at it, and there have been you know sort of redone prints that are really quite gorgeous. Now it's a gorgeous movie. It just should have been a longer movie, and so much was cut out that it, to me, campy in, in areas, kind of painful to watch. Although nowadays it would be better suited as a miniseries. Perfect. Perfect. I agree. Now, I first discovered the Mangwitz family back in 2010. In my freshman year of high school, my drama club presented a production of Guys and Dolls. And even though I had the 1955 film adaptation that Joe Mangwitz wrote and directed on DVD as part of a collection of MGM movie musicals I received from my grandmother about a couple years prior, I actually didn't watch it until after our production was over. Now, back in the 1950s, there was pretty much a list of go-to directors to take on big movie musicals like George Cukor, Stanley Donnan, Vincent and Minnelli, George Sidney, and Charles Walters. However, that genre was a whole new world to Joe Mankiewicz. Now, how did the opportunity for him to direct Skies and Dolls come about? Well, by then, Joe had left the studio. The studio system was beginning to fall apart, and he was at the top of his game. He had won all these Academy Awards, and so he wanted to do different genres of movies, and he had never done a musical. And Samuel Goldwyn, who was famous for wanting the best, was happy to engage him. He conceived of it as somewhat of a, a comic book, fantasy kind of movie. That's the way it is. The whole movie, for example, was filmed on set, indoors, even with cars. It was just extremely expensive to do. He did not direct the musical portions of it. I interviewed Samuel Goldwyn Jr., who was a young man at the time, and he said it was like two different movies were being made because the musical part was not overseen by Joe particularly. You know, the dancing and the choreography and all that. I believe that was all Michael Kidd, the Michael, choreographer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that reminds me of how, you know, Robert Wise was brought in to direct the movie of West Side Story, but since he didn't have any background in musicals, Jerome Robbins, who originally directed and choreographed the Broadway production, was brought in to handle the musical sequence, which earned him a co-directing credit. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the, the musical scene, I, I didn't mean he didn't pay attention. I just mean he was a good director in terms of getting the best out of other people's talents. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the new movie, Mank, is currently playing in select theaters before it debuts on Netflix in a couple of weeks. And this is a film that had been in the works for a while. Jack Fincher, who was a one-time editor of Life magazine, originally wrote the screenplay back in the 1990s. His son, director David Fincher, had intended to make it after wrapping up 1997's The Game, but it was his insistence to shoot Mank in black and white. Now here we are in 2020, and David Fincher has finally made it the film with Gary Oldman's story as Herman Mankiewicz. What were your initial thoughts when you first learned about this project? 
Well, as I said, not a lot of people knew who Herman Mankiewicz was. So I thought, oh my goodness, you know, a major movie with David Fincher directing. Wow, this will certainly raise the, the profile of Herman Mankiewicz and maybe it will sell more books for me. You know, I was excited <laughs> about that, but I was also apprehensive because movies are so powerful. You know, movies define things, right? Biopics, historical movies, all those things. They're such powerful media that once you see something portrayed that way, that becomes the image in your mind. So after spending years and years and years trying to get it right, because biographers are very conscientious about that, I knew that whatever liberties the Finchers took with Herman's story was going to seem the truth. So I was worried about that. I had no control over it, but it was something to sit around and worry about. So I did that too. Well, yeah. And after having recently seen Mank Yourself, what did you think of the finished product and how accurate would you say it is to the real story? Well, first of all, I loved the movie. I can't wait for it to be available to millions because I think it's as a movie itself, leaving aside what I know and don't know. I just loved it, but I'm so close to it. I'll be interested in what people who know nothing about the history of Hollywood in the 30s, which it's also very much about, Herman, Orson Welles, etc. I love the look of it and the sound of it and you know all the formal qualities. As far as its truth, I was worried that it about literal truth. I knew that liberties had to be taken. You have to do things with time. You have to do things with people, etc. And then there's the element of emotional truth. And I think it's very emotionally true. The portrayal of the character of Herman by Gary Oldman, as I assume conceived by Jack and David Fincher, is the same concept I had of Herman. A very lovable, kind, brilliant, witty individual who's also deeply flawed. He was an alcoholic. He was a gambler who put them into debt all the time. He could be very truculent, very self-destructive. And I think it, it captures this somewhat. I was very pleased. Were there fictional elements? Yes. But even the fiction, I was so impressed with the ability to use fiction in a way that didn't really fictionalize the truth. It was quite artful. I think the writing, which is, as a writer, what I often pay attention to most, or first, even in watching a movie. How is this put together? What are they trying to convey? Are they doing so? It's a tour de force. And are there any other aspects of your book that Mink didn't explore that you would personally love to see depicted as a feature film or a miniseries someday? A miniseries. I would love my book to get optioned. It's a perfect miniseries because you have these two protagonists. You have Herman and Joe. Their trajectories switched in the middle. Herman pulled Joe along. Herman was almost 12 years older than Joe, and he was a father figure to Joe for many years. And then because of his persistent self-destruction, he started spiraling down. Joe was always a hard worker and very conscientious, and they sort of crossed in the middle, and then Herman became a burden to Joe. So there was a lot to that relationship, and they're both really interesting characters. And Joe was married three times and had affairs with people like Joan Crawford and Judy Garland. So yes, bring on a miniseries, right? <laughs> if anyone's listening. You know. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and you've also written a book about Gloria Steinem, as you mentioned, and she was yeah. most recently depicted in the FX miniseries Mrs. America and in the Julie Timor-directed biographical film The Glorias. What were your thoughts on both of them? 
Well, first of all, I began to think I had magical powers because all these people that I've been writing about are now in the movies. It was really kind of cool. I saw the movie first, The Glorious. I thought it was exquisite. And um, I thought that Julianne Moore really channeled Gloria. I mean, I, I loved her depiction of Gloria. And of course, Bette Midler as Bella Abzug, you can't, if you know Bette Midler's face, you're always seeing Bette Midler, but I thought she did a great job. I had interviewed Gloria like 45 hours or so. I interviewed a lot of the people in the movie and in the, in the miniseries. So that was fun and it was kind of magical for me to see that come alive. The Mrs. America about Phyllis Schlafly, and I love Kate Blanchett as an actress, was um, illuminating to me. I didn't know as much about Phyllis Schlafly. And of course, I'm watching a, you know, a biopic. I don't know how true it all is. That's the way they chose to present her. But it was really interesting. In the Shirley Chisholm episode about the 1972 presidential convention, when George McGovern was nominated, Gloria got very upset because the party leaders really betrayed the women. And that's in my book. And Frank Mankiewicz was part of that betrayal. He was a campaign manager for McGovern. So I kept thinking, and is Frank Mankiewicz going to be in this too? Which I didn't. He They used to Gary Hart, but the two of them were the operatives. So it was really interesting in that way. So it's been quite a year. Indeed. My other book is the to- it was on the toy business. So I'm waiting for the Barbie movie. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. That Noah Bombay and Greta Gerwig are teaming right. up on. <laughs> right. <laughs> So before we go, do you have any other upcoming projects that you'd like to share with us? I'm finishing a proposal. I can't tell you who about yet, but um, I would say that each book seems to come out of the last book and the family issues and the strength of the influence of parents on children, which, by the way, I think comes out in the Fincher movie, too. Right. Mm -hmm. It was it's very much a tribute to his father. And that's a very touching story. So it'll relate to that. Sydney, I thank you very much for devoting your time to this interview. It was great getting to talk to you. Thank you. I loved talking to you. It was great. Hey, no problem. And for those who'd like to keep up with your career, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, well, I have a website, sydneylstern.com. It's S-Y-D-N-E-Y, L, the initial, Stern. Um, and I'm on Twitter and <laughs> Facebook and all. Sydney underline stern so yes do communicate with me i found social media to be really fun well yeah especially at a time like this people might as well follow you yes well i you know i i just had a twitter versary i'd only been on for a year and i said you know oh my gosh the amount of time i have wasted tweeting and reading everybody's tweets but it's so entertaining and it is like a community <laughs> indeed it is so thank you again for joining me today Sydney. this was great thank you jeffrey And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks. If you love this show, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash carereviewspodcast and follow the simple instructions. Feel free to subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.net. You can also find it on Twitter at CareReviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all later.